0: Folk song on a boat in Galilee a few days ago. I'm a really bad Jewish cultural dancer. Um, I, 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 yeah, it's good to be home. Good to be back with you. You have your scriptures. Would you turn with me back to the brief letter of Titus? Uh, Lord willing, this week and next week we'll conclude our. Uh, Study in this epistle. And I hope there's been something for you. It's about body life, it's about the way that we relate to one another. Uh, in chapter one, just to refresh your mind, Paul writes this letter to this pastor, Titus. Titus is in a difficult place, doing difficult ministry. And in chapter one, he really deals with the issue of the church and our relationship with one another. In chapter two, he deals with the issue of the home, and certainly there was something, I hope, in that for you. And then in chapter 3, he really deals with the wider ripple effect on ministry before the watching world. And we find ourselves, really, you you can imagine that the Apostle Paul, as God carries him along on the river of inspiration, that he is summarizing, that he's sensing together the truth that he has been sharing can almost see him circling the airport looking for a place that he will put this letter down. And as he does it this morning in the verses before us, he gives us some summary thoughts that help us so greatly, serve us so well, remind us of our pilgrimage and our journey together as people of God. And we pick it up in verse 11 of chapter 3, and we read through to verse, um, I'm sorry, verse 8. Through to verse 11. Here's what we read in God's Word. This is a faithful saying, and these things, and right away, these things, you're wondering what these things are. If you read back to verse 7, it's this hope of eternal life, it's this gospel truth. These things, he says, I want you to affirm constantly that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. But, word of contrast, verse 9, But avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. Strong language in verse 10. Reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, come now and help us, help me to be a blessing to your people. Deal with us, Lord. Here we are in this new year, and we're as needy as we were last year. Maybe just so this us needier. Father, help us to live out the Gospel. Meet us uniquely in our weaknesses, whether it's emotional or physical or financial or spiritual, Father, come and meet us in our need. Come and be our Father. Father, we don't want to just know things about you. We want you to reveal yourself to us. We would pray, Lord God, show us your glory. We don't want 2018 to be what 2017 was. So come, Lord God, and show us your glory. We plead for that your people uniquely and intimately in a way that we never could. And we ask all of this most strongly with Jesus Christ. Amen. Last week, I attended a wedding in Jerusalem at Christ Church. It is the oldest Protestant church in the Middle East. It's just inside the Jaffa Gate. Um, it was a precious spectacle. I very much enjoyed it. After the vows, the couple were drawn together in an embrace. You know how it goes, right? Um, that you may now kiss the bride. And it was a delight to see the kissing of the bride, to see the embrace. I was reminded of Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 5 that says this, there is a time to embrace and a time to refrain from, from embracing. And as members of Christ's church, there are truths that we are to embrace, hold on to, cling to, with great ferocity if need be. And there are things that we should refrain from embracing. We should run from, we should hold at arm's length. There is falsehood that we hold away from us by the grace of God. The verses before us in Titus chapter 3 remind us of our testimony in this world. And certainly we know it, don't we? We know that we live in a broken world. it's broken on so many different levels, politically, economically, religiously, culturally, racially, domestically. We know that we live in a fragmented world among fragmented people. Change the analogy, crooked people who live in a crooked house. We know that. And yet gloriously, God is displaying his love. Because what all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't do, God puts us back together again. We know we've had a great fall, and yet gloriously, God is the God of second chances and restoration. And we live out that truth. We live out that glorious redemption story. No, I'm not what I should be, but praise God, I'm not what I used to be. Praise God, he's changing me and making me more and more of what I should be. And we understand from Titus that God is determined that the people of God would display this redemptive tale, this story of rescue. We've been ransomed from the fall. We know, as Luther says, that in this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, We will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. We know that there is this trauma that is a part of our experience, our journey, and our pilgrimage. We also know this glorious responsibility, that, as he knits us together, to display that knitting together before the watching world. God demonstrates at the glorious level terrain at the cross... The ability to make ugly things brand new, to take things that are broken and put them back together. Now, let me remind you of the setting of Titus. Titus has this unique ability to navigate chaotic settings with a kind of tenderness and toughness. We first see his ministry in Corinth, which is a serious fixer-upper, if you will, And God uses this man to navigate this difficult church setting, and he does so with great aplomb. He does so with great grace and great mercy. Now he's been left behind on the Isle of Crete, and there is some serious dysfunction here. But God uses Titus and Paul's ministry to Titus to put things in order, to set bones, to skillfully apply the scalpel of truth where there needs to be the cauterization of dangerous, cancerous cells. And Paul is tightening up his load here, first to the church in one, to the home in two, and now finally to the watching world in chapter 3. And I have just two points, two markers, two signposts in our journey through the text this morning. We might say it this way from verse 8. God says... Through Paul to Titus, this embrace good works in the world. The calling of God upon our lives as pilgrims operating from this base of operation here in Westerlo, New York is embrace good works in the world. And it almost sounds simplistic, doesn't it? Paul says, This is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly. Titus, I'm sending you into this chaotic environment, and I want you to affirm constantly these truths. I want you to embrace good works in the world. See, the danger for us as followers of Christ is to neglect good works in favor of actions that are less straining, less demanding, less costly, and less difficult. And yet, as we begin to bring this truth Epistle in for landing. He says, cling, hang on to, practice good works. The challenge for many of us in 2018 will be to practice what we profess. To practice what we profess. We can say it, but the challenge is, can we live it? The challenge is, can I do what God has called me to do? We embrace so many other facets of life. We're so often involved in minutiae that has no bearing upon eternity or future glory or the glory of God. And it's tragic because we find ourselves off on the margins and the sidelines doing what has no bearing. Tom Heyman wrote an interesting book called In an Average Lifetime, and he reveals how average North Americans spend their lifetime. It's fascinating stuff. On an average, we will spend three years in business meetings. On an average, as North Americans, we will spend 13 years watching television. We will spend, on average, $89,281 on food. We will consume, our bodies will consume, some of us more than others, 109,354 pounds of food. On average, we'll make 1,811 trips to McDonald's don't be saying, oh, that's other people, I never go there. Somebody's going there. We'll spend $6,881 on vending machines. We'll eat 35,138 cookies. 1,483 pounds of cake. We'll catch 304 colds on average in our lifetime. We'll have six motor vehicle accidents, be hospitalized, for men eight times, for women 12 times. And we will spend 24 hours, 24 years sleeping on average. Now here's the question that we need to ask ourselves. How much of that time are we spending embracing the good works and making manifest and visible our profession of faith in Jesus Christ? It's the minutia, folks. We win or lose the battle on these kinds of simple, everyday, daily drudgery levels. The important responsibility for us, as Paul brings it in for a landing here, the thing that we must always and constantly affirm is, is that we maintain good works. These things, Paul says, are good and profitable to men. Titus is insisting that the Cretans persist In truth, this is not an elective for us as the children of God. You remember electives from college? I do. I took a course called History and Philosophy of Sport in Bible college. It was an elective. It was a dumb choice. I should have taken a course in typing or in Hebrews or something like that. But all the other jacks were doing it, and so I did it. It was an elective. It was a choice. You need to understand that there are some things in the Christian life that are not electives. You think somehow you can kick it down the lane, do it another time, do it another way, and it doesn't work like that. You want to take another lap around Sinai? The call of God upon our lives is to do first things and to do hard things and to embrace good works in this world. And it's fascinating because Paul says, I want you to affirm this constantly. He's not making a suggestion here. He's not expressing a mere desire here. He is insisting. You know that God can insist on things in our lives because we've been bought with a price and we are not our own. That's the challenge for us as followers of Christ to understand. The demand here is for clear understanding, for concrete convictions. We live so often in this kind of nebulous, white-noise, feeling-orientated world, and God has made it far more simple than we think it is. Embrace good works. Cling to good works. And you'll notice that these good works, these are not works that prove somehow that we're good folks. These are good works so that people from the outside who are living and seeing our lives would say, I don't know why they're different, but they're different. The call of God upon our lives, the insistence of the, uh, the Apostle Paul is, embrace good works. Barclay makes this helpful comment. He says, the Christian must be an example of and zealous for good works. He must be anxious to produce good works by which His life must be marked. Christians must incite each other to love and good works. They must have a good conscience. Clearly, it's not enough that the Christian life should be good. It must also be attractive. It stresses the fact that the best advocate of Christianity to the outsider is the sheer attractive loveliness of the life of the true Christian. This is where we live good works, not so that we can pat ourselves in the back, but rather so the people would know that we've been with Jesus and he's changing us. Folks, can I ask you this question? When people get up close and personal with you, do they understand that you're embracing Jesus Christ? That that you're clinging to him because in him and in him alone is life? Jesus says, I am come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. Do you believe that? Do you embrace that truth? Our world is full of people who, from the outside, look attractive and beautiful, but from the inside, there is death, and there is heartache. Mission for us as the people of God is one of the primary reasons that we live out this beautiful Christian life, where we, we come to God with our brokenness and our ashes, and he exchanges it, and he gives us beautiful things. Embrace the life of Christ in 2018. Exude the life of Christ. Illustrate the life of Christ. Illumine the life of Christ. You say, well, there's nothing really that beautiful in me. And I would agree with you, there isn't. But if Christ is in you, there's something beautiful there. See, Jesus, in his ministry in the Gospels, embrace certain segments of ancient culture like publicans and sinners and the diseased and the broken, and realize that that's, in part, the life of Christ that he's calling us towards. For those, however, who refuse to be honest and refuse to remove their masks, he weighs them and finds them wanting. It reminds me of that phrase from Daniel chapter 5, when Belshazzar's having the feast, and a hand appears on the wall, and it writes out these words: "Mini, mini, kiko, you person. You've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Maybe, just maybe, you're sitting here this morning. You've been weighed in the balances and found wanting because you've not been embracing the life of Christ. The challenge for us as God's people is to." embrace the life of Christ, to live it out with a kind of glorious boldness and joy-filled brokenness. So we notice, first of all, this signpost, embrace good works in the world. Secondly, and finally this, refrain from embracing those who are contentious and rebellious. It's a strong word. This is a serious word that we read in verse 9, but avoid foolish disputes. Titus, Paul says, Titus, avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. Then it goes on, if that wasn't bad enough in verse 10, reject divisive man after the first and second admonition. So there is a process here where you're trying to get someone's attention, but it does not go on indefinitely. Verse 11, knowing that such a person is warped in sinning, being self-condemned. Avoid foolish questions. This is a key pastoral component. When it comes to shepherding people, there is a part of that in which we say, I love you, I want to share truth with you, but I will not go on ad infinitum, ad nauseum forever, dealing with things that, frankly, I don't think you ever want to learn. Do you realize there are people who are always learning and never able to come to a knowledge of truth? That's disturbing. Hebrews 6 is a frightening passage for me. But it's the truth of God's word. And so Paul lays it out to Titus and he says, Hey man, don't waste your time with folks who are running away from God. Don't waste your time with people who don't want to know and don't want to learn. There are some ridiculous controversies out there. There are some divisive discussions out there. And be careful of investing too much of yourself in them. I didn't didn't get to Bethlehem, but some of the team that we were with went to Bethlehem. Did you know there is a church in Bethlehem that has been raised up over a place where it is purportedly believed that a few drops of Mary's breast milk spilled that that place somehow has some kind of superstitious healing ability, that's bizarre. That's bizarre. And those kinds of superstitions exist all around our world. And so for us, the people of God, to commit ourselves to knowing everything about everything and trying to uh, unscrew the inscrutable, it doesn't make sense and it doesn't square with God's Word. God's Word packed he declares that he resists the proud. The language here is that he actually holds them at arm's length. We're very fond of saying, if God be for us, who can be against us? But think with me of the, the converse. If God be against us, who can be for us? There are people that have set themselves in array against the holy and righteous God. And they loathe the gospel. They loathe God. They're always learning and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. And Paul says to Titus, your ministry on Crete, setting broken bones, putting things in order, dealing with this very difficult society, hey man, don't waste your time with some of these folks. Hold them at arm's length because they are divisive. They are toxic. I'm not saying that we're making a decision in and of ourselves, saying, well, they're in the kingdom or they're out of the kingdom. But there is a practical component here where we are to avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law. If people are messing with the core message of grace, then we need to hold them at arm's length. The early church historian Asubius says that after the apostles passed away, a conspiracy of godless air took over, took its rise through the seat of false teachers who had endeavored with brazen face to preach their knowledge falsely so-called in opposition to the preaching of the truth. So this is not some new deal where all of a sudden we got wolves and things like that around. This has been a part of church history. And so practically speaking, when we sort of put on our shoes and and strap on our apron and our clothes and we get about the business of serving for the glory of God, part of that is that we embrace good works. And another part is that we will not waste our time dealing with bizarre controversies. Verse 11 says, This one is subverted, which means twisted or warped, have turned in on themselves. This is a medical term that describes an ankle that has been sprained, it's been wrongly aligned, it's out of tilter. They've condemned themselves, they've become self-condemned. By their own contentions, the subverted one condemns himself and shows whose camp he is in. It's heavy language. Is it possible that you spent time trying to unscrew the inscrutable last year, and frankly you wasted kingdom time and kingdom effort? Believers are to reject contentious people who want to divide the body of Christ. Now, this does not mean that we're not loving on God's people. We're not dealing with one of those prickles and stings. This is something something far more graphic. This is something far more dangerous. This is a perversion of the truth of the gospel. So refrain from embracing those who are contentious and rebellious. When do we reject him? After the first and second warning? This is a radical procedure. It's proof of its very seriousness. Hebert makes this statement, I I find it's helpful. I think it does a good job of adding a capstone to the passage this morning. His stubborn refusal of admonition would assure Titus that this man is warped. The perfect tense marked him as being in a state of perversion, twisted and turned out and woolly out of touch with truth. The passive voice seems to point to the satanic agency behind his condition. Sinful represents a present tense verb. He is sinning. He's deliberately missing the divine standard by which persistent refusal to receive, by his persistent refusal to receive correction. It reveals an inner moral condition of being self-condemned. He, he knows that in his deliberate refusal to abandon his self-chosen views, he's He's wrong and he stands condemned by his own better judgment, end quote. I know that that's wordy, but you you realize from that that this is a process. This is someone who's turned in upon themselves. And Titus, who's so tender and so tough, who's got this thick skin and this soft heart, he says, watch out. Hold at arm's length. Don't embrace someone like this. There are people to be loved and cared for. There are people whom we cling to, we embrace, we cry over, we passionately pursue. There are others that we don't do that to. Truth, we know, sets people free. Air puts them into bondage. Truth is to be embraced, and air for the people of God is to be avoided. There are good works that are to be a part of our witness and our testimony, and. They will not shine through if we're always confused and divided in our thinking and our mind. The true church suffered horribly in Yugoslavia, often at the hands of those involved in what was commonly referred to as the state-sponsored religion. It was exceedingly corrupt. One day, an evangelist by the name of Jakov arrived in a certain village, and he commiserated with an elderly man named Simmerman, about some of the tragedies that had been experienced. Jackoff began to talk about the love of Christ, and Zimmerman abruptly interrupted him and told him that he wanted nothing to do with Christianity. He reminded Jackoff of the dreadful history of the church in his town. There was a history of plundering and exploiting and killing innocent people. Sermon said, my own nephew was killed by them. He was angry. He rebuffed any effort that Jackoff had to speak of Jesus Christ. Sermon said, they wear those elaborate coats and caps and crosses, he said, signifying a heavenly commission, but their evil designs and lives I cannot ignore. Jackoff looking for an occasion to get simmering to think, I wanted to change his line of thinking. He said this to him. He said, Simmeron, can I ask you a question? Suppose I were to steal your coat and put it on and break into a bank. Suppose further that the police sighted me running in a distance but could not catch up with me. One clue, however, was that they recognized your coat. What would you say if they came to your house and accused you of breaking into a bank? Zimmerman said, I would deny it. Jackoff said, yes, but I saw your coat. Well, the analogy annoyed Zimmerman, and he ordered Jackoff to leave his home. But Jackoff was not finished with his ministry. He continued to return to the village periodically just to prevent to befriend Zimmerman to encourage him and share the love of Christ with him. He persevered. Finally, one day, Simmerman asked, how does one become a Christian? And Jacob taught him the simple steps of repentance from sin and trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ, gently pointing him to the shepherd of his soul. And bent his knee on the soil, and with his head bowed, he surrendered his life to Jesus Christ. And as he rose to his feet, wiping away his tears, he embraced Jackoff and he said, Thank you for being in my life. And then he pointed to the heavens and he whispered, You wear his coat well. That's the challenge for us in 2018. To wear his coat well. To embrace the gospel? For sure. To understand the gospel? Absolutely. Oh, but to live out the gospel. To live out the gospel. To embrace good works. And to refrain from embracing those things that only confuse and only divide. Father God, thank you for our time in your word. Not a super encouraging passage, Lord, deals with my heart. Time wasted, time spent, doing silly minutiae that does not matter. Oh, Lord God, superintend our hearts and our minds, help us to think thoughts of you that are worthy of you. Father, I pray for those that might be here and way off track, Wasting time, effort, and energy and things that don't matter. Spending money we don't have on things we don't need to impress people we don't like. Lord God, help us. Clean us, sanctify us, change us. Show your glory to us, Lord. Help us to walk before you in honesty and integrity. Help us to live out the gospel, Lord. We can't do this without you. Father, even now as we go to the table, Pray that it be a cleansing time, a glorious time of remembrance. That, Lord, you have given to us a cloak of righteousness. You've declared us whole and pure and positionally, Lord God, that has not been altered. But, oh, Lord God, practically speaking, we need help. So come and hear our cries, Lord, as we meet together as a family of God. Oh, Lord, present yourself to us. Remind us of the cross. Remind us of the hope that is ours, the eternal hope that is ours. The fact that a champion has come forth, clean and pure and vital and vibrant and strong. A sinless lamb has been slain for us. Oh, Lord God, as we come to the table this first time in this new year, Hear our cries in stillness.
1: These are an opportunity
0: for us to renew our vows. And so, Lord God, help us, we ask. In the strong name of Jesus, amen. Folks, as we prepare our hearts for the table, Lord, I'll ask the men to come. Sorry, brother.